Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. I'm going to do something a little different today. We're walking back into our study of the book of Acts and I want to give you the ending before the beginning. Is that okay? You know, I just, I don't know what it is. I don't like to delay gratification. I'm the guy who bought Christmas presents early and wanted to give them to my family in November. I don't like to wait. So I'm going to go ahead and just in case there's some of you among us this morning that don't like to wait, I'm going to go ahead and give you the ending. So let's do this. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter one. Now, if you don't have your Bible with you, or you know what, you just stayed up really, really late because of all the fireworks and stuff that were going off last night, um, that's okay. It'll be up on the screen for you. But I do want to start at the end, and I'll explain why it's the end in just a minute. Um, but here's Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And as we're reading this, remember that this is a church, a church in a particular city. In fact, a church in the city of Philippi and at this point, a church that's been established, has leadership, and has been a partner with Paul in the gospel for a long time at this point. And here's what he says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in the knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, we're not starting a study on the book of Philippians, but I wanted to start here because what we see here is a church that Paul, and I don't think Paul's ever disingenuous, Paul is genuinely affectionate toward. Paul loves these people. Paul clearly has had a history with these people. Uh, he's speaking to them in the ways we've seen him speak to others that he's cared for like a father caring for children. He loves them dearly. He thinks of them. He prays for them often. And we see that they have been partners with him in the gospel. In fact, they've done this in numerous different ways. They've supported him. They've given him uh, resources. They've contributed to uh, um, funds to him. And even now, while Paul's writing this in prison, they have sent people with provisions for Paul to care for him even in these extreme circumstances. This is an established church that loves the Lord, that loves Paul, his servant, and is doing everything they can to advance the gospel. 
But that's the end of the story, if you will, because this church had some pretty humble origins. And we're going to get to see that together today in our study of Acts. And so if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to our passage for today, Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 11. And as you're turning there to Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 11, I want to give you just a little bit of context. Because I know we've had the Christmas season, we've been on different subjects, and so I want to remind you of where we left off last time we were in Acts. So Paul is on in his second missionary journey. If you remember his first missionary journey, him and Barnabas went out throughout uh, various Greek city-states and proclaimed the gospel. They went to the synagogues and proclaimed to the Jewish people. They didn't have much of a harvest there, but they had some. They went out to the Gentiles, and a huge number of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, were coming to faith in Jesus. And so they finished their first missionary journey. They went back to their sending church at Antioch, and they were celebrating. Look at what God has done. He brought in the harvest. Amazing amounts of Gentiles have come to faith in God through Jesus Christ. And they celebrated this. When Paul ventured out on his second missionary journey, he first went back to those same churches he went to the first time. He wanted to make sure that the disciples were faring well, that the gospel was still going forward, that leadership was leading, that things were okay. And so he went across and visited all these different regions a second time. But then when he had done that, he wasn't ready to go home because now he was looking to new frontiers where the gospel could be taken, places where the gospel had not yet been preached and where him and his companions can go and tell people about Jesus. And so Paul and his companions had a plan. They knew where they were going to go next until God intervened. God sent a vision to Paul, one of a man in Macedonia crying out, begging help. And through that vision, God was redirecting Paul and his companions to a specific region, to the region of Macedonia. And as we pick up our passage today, Paul and his companions are faithfully going to that region to do what God had called them to do. So again, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to start in Acts 16, starting in verse 11. Here's what it says. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So again, Paul is only here, only in the city, only meeting these people and only having these results because God is the one who redirected them exactly where they were supposed to go. And this is interesting. We were looking at this this morning in Sunday school and 
Before Philippi is mentioned, Paul and his companions went to various other cities. But Luke, in writing Acts, didn't give us any information there. So it's possible that Paul just used those as jumping off points to get to Philippi. It's more likely that Paul and his companions were doing ministry in these towns, but it wasn't necessary that he include them in the book of Acts. But for whatever reason, God intended through inspiration that Luke would include this account of what took place in Philippi. And Philippi is an interesting place, by the way. There's a couple things in our text that kind of stand out. Uh, first is this, the Philippi was a city without a synagogue. In fact, we haven't seen that really yet. As Paul's gone town to town outside of Israel in these Greek areas, he goes first to the synagogue and preaches to the Jews before going out of the synagogue and preaching to the Gentiles. But we don't see a synagogue mentioned. In fact, on the Sabbath day, which is the day that the Jews would have gathered in the synagogue, we see them meeting outside of the city walls at the river. And the reason for this is that there was not enough Jewish people to have a synagogue. The Jewish people had not been in this area long enough to have it established, core of Jewish people and a core center of worship. And so in a town where there was no synagogue, they would meet outside of the city gates at a river or a place of flowing water. And so Paul, knowing that there was no synagogue in the town, knew exactly where to find the Jewish people outside of the city, somewhere along the banks of the river. We also see something, another absence here. Not only is there not a synagogue, but there's no mention of men. Isn't that interesting? So as, as Paul's going out there, it says he's, he went and spoke to the women. I don't think he was ignoring the men and just wanted to go speak to the women. There probably weren't any men, or at least many men, that were there among the women, these faithful Jewish people worshiping outside of the city on the Sabbath day. And one of these women that was there, one of these women that Paul was proclaiming the gospel to was a woman by the name of Lydia. Clearly, Lydia was an influential woman in Philippi. Uh, Luke makes mention of her by name, explains that she's a dealer in purple cloth, uh, which is something that the aristocratic people, the wealthy people would have purchased uh, more than other people. Uh, she has a home of her own. And, and invited Paul and company to stay there once she came to faith in Jesus. And so these are just some of the noteworthy things that we see here in this text. But there's three things specifically that I wanna highlight this morning that I think are, are really important. They're important in and of themselves. And I think as we look at who we are and what we're about and what God is calling us to right here in Belglade and beyond in this new year, these are things that are important reminders for us as well. And so here's the first one that I wanna share with you. One of the great things we love about the scriptures is that it not only shines a light on things in our own lives, but it points to the Lord. It teaches us something about God, and here's what it teaches us. God is on mission. Have you heard this before? Do you, do you think sometimes Kevin has very limited material because he says the same thing over and over again? Just remember, I don't come up with the material. It comes right out of here. And I love this, and I don't ever want us to miss this. And this is foundational for everything else we're going to talk about in this text. That God is on mission. Yes, we're called to be on mission, but we're only called to be on mission because we have a God who is always on mission. And that's evident 
in this entire scenario we're reading about here in this text. Remember that the whole reason that Paul and his companions are in Philippi is because God is not just like, Paul, you go do whatever you think is best. But God is like, Paul, you're not going where you were planning to go. I need you to go here. This is the next step in the mission. And we see God engaged here as well. Remember Acts 16, verse 14, which we just read. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now, what does it mean she was a worshiper of God? I mean, does that mean she didn't need to hear the message? No. She was most likely a Jewish person or a God-fearer, a Gentile who came to worship with the Jewish people because uh, she believed in their God. So one way or the other, whether she was a Jewish person or a Gentile convert, uh, she was somebody who recognized the true God. She believed the Old Testament. She believed God's word, but she had not yet heard the gospel that Jesus the Messiah has come. He died on the cross to pay for, their, for, pay for their sins. He rose again from the dead, and we must commit our life to him as our Lord. She had not yet heard that, so Paul proclaimed it, and God, who had sent Paul and his companions here, made sure that she would be receptive to that message when she got it. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. That sounds like a God who is active a God who is on mission. I think that sometimes, and I'm guilty of this more than anybody, that's why I could speak about it intelligently, because I think we think of it like this, that we go and do something for God. And so there's this, there's this tension between God is the one who's on mission and we are joining him on mission and our tendency to revert to, I have to go and do something for God. You know, when we think about um, the task of evangelism, for instance, if I said after the service, we're all going to go together down to Walgreens and we're all going to go find a stranger and go tell them about Jesus, would you try to sneak out of the back? Would you try to disappear into the bathroom as the service is ending? Uh, would you get in your car really, really quickly because you didn't want to do that right away, right? Why? Because we have this fear about it, right? We, we have this, this nervousness about, about being thrust in such a situation where we have to share the gospel. And I have that too. And I'm being honest, I have that too. So why is that our tendency to fear that? I know we are Jesus-loving people, right? He has blessed us in innumerable ways, and we would love to tell people about it, right? We've, we've, we've read this enough to, to know what God has done, to know how we achieve salvation, and to know what other people have to do to respond to it. So my question is, why are we so nervous about doing that? And I think it comes down to this, 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 this problem, this default mode we keep falling into, which is to imagine that God has somehow said, just go do that. And we have to be obedient and do that. But all the responsibility, all the, the capability to do that rests on us. But when we read through the scriptures, that's never the case. It's never about going and doing something for God. It's about joining God in what God is doing. He's the power behind it. He's the one at work. 
We just get to be excited and show up to watch him do amazing things. That's what Paul did, right? And I think that if we would just somehow get this straight, that we don't go and do something for God and check that box, but we're going to work alongside a God who's always been on mission, who is at work in the hearts and minds of the people we're going to talk to long before we get there, who's present with us in those moments when we're engaging people about God. And even after we leave, regardless of how we thought it went, oh, it went awfully. Oh, they listened to me, but they didn't really respond. Or, oh, they gave their life to Jesus. Regardless of the response, God is still there working long after we leave. Friends, we need to remember that God is on mission and he's invited us. He has commanded us. I'll put it in those terms. He has commanded us to join him in what he's doing, not to go do something apart from him. And there's a big difference to how that will work out in the end. Because God will always be more successful than we are. <laughs> I think that it could be hard for us sometimes to recognize that God is on mission. We could read the scriptures and it seems pretty evident, right? From what we see that God is on mission. But in our own lives, does it seem like God is on mission all the time? Why is it so easy for us to forget or to not think of it in these terms? Here's just some of the things I came up with. We don't physically see him at work, right? We see ourselves out there, we see the person we're talking to, and we, can't, we don't physically see God. So it's very easy, perhaps, sometimes to, not, to imagine that he's not there or to not, see, not to, to recognize that he is there. We often shoulder the responsibility of evangelism ourselves. If you don't think you do that, have you ever had this thought? Oh, what if I get there and I don't know what to say? Oh, what if at the end of our conversation, they're farther away from God than when we started? Oh, what if I make God look really bad? If you've ever had any thought like this, that you can mess it all up, then we are forgetting the fact that we don't shoulder the responsibility of evangelism ourselves. God is the one at work as we go. It's also hard to recognize God on mission, perhaps because we judge success in mission by the wrong criteria. We expect, if we're going to proclaim the gospel, that they're going to come to faith in Jesus. And if they don't, if there's any other outcome, we failed. But that's the criteria we put on ourselves. God never says that. It's nowhere in Scripture. In fact, people have free will to choose themselves. Most people take multiple opportunities of hearing the gospel before they respond positively. And God could be at work in somebody's heart and mind whether or not they give their faith to Jesus in the moment you shared the gospel with them. We sometimes live by the wrong criteria that we've imposed, and so we don't recognize that God is at work even in those moments where they say no. We don't engage in the mission enough, perhaps, to see God at work in and through us. I'll be honest, the more you share the gospel, the more you're going to have those moments where it's like, wow, I thought for sure they'd say no, but they said yes. I can't believe they accepted an invitation to church. I can't believe they're willing to sit down and look at the scriptures with me. I would have thought this person would never come to faith in Jesus. The more we do it, the more we see God work and we see him break through and people change. People be transformed. People become receptive to the gospel. So I encourage you, if you don't see God enough working in and through evangelism, do it more. And sometimes perhaps it's that we don't take the mission seriously enough 
and often don't see it as an important part of God's agenda. You know, God wants a lot from me, right? He wants me to go to church. He wants me to, to be a good person. He wants me to read the scriptures. He wants me to pray, right? And we tend to think of these things in terms of what God wants. When all of that is important, but God's mission statement is marching orders for his people are to be on mission with him. It is a serious, important part of God's agenda. We do serve a God who's on mission. We see this so many places. The Old Testament is an entire map of God's plan of salvation that goes all the way through history of promises of Jesus and then the arrival of Jesus. We see that God did send Jesus to redeem humanity through his death and resurrection. This is the cornerstone of our faith. This is the, the central climax of this Bible. This, is, this was what all of history was pointing to, was Jesus' death and resurrection, and everything else is possible only because of that. That is the work of a God on mission. The church for the last 2,000 years has been commissioned to spread the good news of salvation in Jesus. And God has empowered his people by his spirit to effectively testify to Jesus. We also see that God draws, God convicts, God is always at work in the mission. And again, we see it in our text today, don't we? Even though we don't have Luke's commentary on our day, guess what? If Luke were here to write Book of Acts Part 2, and it, had, it took place in Belle Glade in 2023, right? As we're going out and sharing the gospel with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our family members, with the cashier at Winn-Dixie, uh, as, we're, as we're engaging with people, if Luke were here and God opened their heart to receive the gospel and God planted a seed for them to ponder. Yeah, these are the kinds of things. I wish we had a commentary. It would probably bolster our faith to know exactly how God was working in each of those situations. But just because we don't have a book written, just because Luke isn't following us around with a scroll and with a, a pen, it doesn't mean that God is not at work. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we see how he works. God is on mission. Here's the second thing I want us to get from our text today. The mission is often in the margins. I'm going to say that again. The mission is often in the margins. And I know that I've said that God is on mission before, but I don't think I've ever actually said this before, that the mission is often in the margins and we don't spend a lot of time in the margins. Our text says that Philippi was the leading city of that district of Macedonia. It was an important city. It was a well-populated city. It was a city that not only had a lot of people living in it, it was a city that a lot of people traveled to because it's where court cases were held. It's where, city, or where, where the business of the region was dealt with. It's a place where political leaders would have traveled through. It is an important, big city. In fact, for the history buffs among us, uh, this was a place of a famous battle in Roman history between Mark Antony and Octavian fighting against those who killed Julius Caesar, at least the leading consp uh, conspirators, uh, Brutus and Cassius. And so if you don't like history, that's all I had for you today. But um, I like history. I'm sorry, especially Roman history. 
But Philippi was a major city. In the time of Paul's journey to Philippi, it had many public areas where Paul could have come and proclaimed the gospel. I just want to say this. Big city, lots of opportunities, lots of venues, lots of places for orators, for philosophers, for sophists, for for people who come to proclaim things and people who come to hear it could have taken place. Uh, There were four, what we know from archaeology, there were four basilicas. These are big public areas where court cases were heard and public business was attended to. Other cities didn't have one or had one or two. There were four basilicas in Philippi. There was a theater. There was a marketplace. There was a lot of things, a lot of places that Paul could have set up shop to proclaim the gospel. Do we see that in our text? No. Why? What do we see? Where did Paul and his companions go to proclaim the gospel? Verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Isn't it amazing with all the public spaces, with all the places that normally had orators coming and speaking to the people, Paul went outside of the city, down to the river, where a small ragtag group of Jewish women were meeting on the Sabbath. Again, this is a town, a city, that despite its population, despite its acclaim, had a very tiny Jewish population. Not even enough to have a synagogue in the town. So Paul didn't go to the Romans, he didn't go to the Greeks, he didn't go to the affluent, He went to this small little group of Jewish people that had to meet outside of the city because there was no place inside of the city to meet on the Sabbath day. Paul always took the gospel first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Again, in other cities, he went to these synagogues because there was well-established Jewish communities, but here there wasn't. In fact, in Philippi, the Jewish people were on the fringe. They were the marginal people. These were the ones that were looked down upon, the foreigners, the aliens, the ones that are different. They worship different. They believe different. They looked different. They wore different things. They didn't eat the same food they ate. And so they were looked at very differently from everybody else. They were a small group among a huge population. And this is who Paul went to. And we see that there was no synagogue. They met by the river. There was no mention of Torah readings because not even all the synagogues had Torah scrolls. And certainly this group didn't have any. There's no mention of religious leaders. Maybe Philippi had some, but most likely they didn't. And of all the people in Philippi, this is the group that had to have been seen as the least significant. Again, the foreigners, the different ones. And it's with this small community that Paul went. And they were receptive to the gospel. Isn't it interesting that those who don't have everything that everybody else has, those who are looked at as different, those who do deal with hardship in life, they seem to be more receptive to the gospel? And certainly this was the case here. And I have an experiment for you and for me. So I'm going to ask for you to trust me for a moment and close your eyes. I promise I won't do anything to you. I'm up on stage. But please close your eyes for just a moment. I'm going to ask you to use your imagination. I want you to imagine for a moment that Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Somehow he got us the memo. Jesus is coming back tomorrow. He's not changing his itinerary. 
People who follow Jesus are good. <laughs> In fact, they're looking forward to it. Can't wait for him to come tomorrow. People who don't follow Jesus will spend eternity apart from him. That's the end. Their time limit is there tomorrow. You only have today to share the gospel, and then all is sealed forever and ever. Who do you tell? I want you to picture him in your mind. Who do you tell? Who do you share the gospel with? In fact, I want you to think in your mind with your eyes closed right now of three people. Who are the first three people that you are going to share the gospel with? Can you picture them? Do you have their names? I want you to open your eyes. So let me ask you, who was it for you? Who came to your mind? Who, who made your top three? Is it a family member? In fact, if it was a family member in your top three, please raise your hand. Okay. Is it a friend? Was there a friend that made your top three? Uh, raise your hand. Okay. How about a coworker? Anybody have a coworker that made their top three? Raise your hand. All right. We had at least one coworker in there. So here's the question for you. And first of all, I don't want to diminish any of those people who you came up with. Of course, those are the people that we love, we're in relationship with. We desperately want them to be saved. Who do we target? Who are those that we think of first? We think of those who are closest to us. We think of those who are in our circles. We think of those who are like us. We think of those who we, who we relate to, right? And, there's, and we definitely do want to reach them. But it's interesting that in my experience, we never think about those that are beyond that. Here's an interesting reality, at least in my experience. Many or most of those that are in that category, that are top three, those who are close to, those who we relate to, those who are like us, those are the people that don't tend to be very receptive to the gospel. In fact, I would guess that those people in your top three, you have probably tried to reach with the gospel in some way, shape, or form in the past. You've tried to tell them about Jesus. You've tried to invite them to church. You've tried to remind them of the faith they had when they're younger. You've tried, you've tried, you've tried. It's not the first time you've had these conversations with them. Many or most of those that fit into this category don't tend to be very receptive to the gospel. However, there are plenty who are not close to us who are not in our circles, who are not like us, who we don't necessarily relate to, but they are ready to receive the gospel. I want you to think for a minute of Jesus's ministry. He wasn't welcomed by the religious leaders. He wasn't welcomed by the Pharisees. He wasn't welcomed by the priests. He wasn't welcomed by the Jewish ruling council. He wasn't welcomed by the rich. He wasn't welcomed by the powerful. However, he was welcomed by the broken. He was welcomed by the sick, by the demon-possessed, by the poor, by the leper, by the blind. They were desperate for Jesus, and they recognized they had a need that they couldn't fix themselves. And Jesus' most effective ministry was among those who the world would consider marginal, the world would consider outcasts, the world would consider the fringe. And I can think of a few reasons why this was the case. Um, they were likely easily able to get out of their own way. They didn't cling to preconceived notions. They thought they had it all figured out. They don't need anybody to tell them anything. They weren't like that. They didn't think they could just handle it all themselves. I got this, you know. They didn't see themselves as holy enough, as good enough, as powerful enough. They were desperate. And people need to be desperate to come to Jesus. Let's be honest. If you're not desperate, you probably didn't fully come to Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. Why do we come to Jesus? 
Because we recognize we got a problem we can't fix. And he's the only one with the solution. And we desperately need what he has. There's no other way to get it. You have to be desperate to come to Jesus. They need to recognize that they need something. And Jesus is the only one who has what they need. In our context, we engage with people who grew up in the church and assume they're good with God. Who heard that God loves them and assumes that that means that God doesn't require anything of them. They could just do anything they want. They said a prayer once and go through life thinking that that means they could be done with God, but God won't be done with them. They've heard it all. They know it all. They don't want things to change. They like their life just the way it is. This is most of the people we engage with. Maybe those in our top three, I don't know. Meanwhile, right here in our own community even, there are broken, hurting, scared people everywhere who don't know what tomorrow holds, who, deals, who deal with realities today that they have no idea how they're going to get through. There are people who need to know that there's hope. There are people that need to know that God loves them. Even if they've heard those words, they can't fathom it's true or can't believe it's true for them. There are people who need to know that there, is a, that there is good news that puts even present suffering in context. There are people in our midst who need to hear and would be responsive to the gospel if we shared it. The mission is often in the margins. Again, you don't have to take the breaks off of sharing the gospel with your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors. I hope you keep doing that. Don't give up. I'm not telling you to give up. I'm asking, can we also look beyond them too to those who God is calling us to, God is leading us to, those who desperately need us to proclaim hope and to show love? Jesus himself said it, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And if we go through life and it doesn't seem like the harvest is plentiful, maybe there's lots of fields, but there's nothing coming to fruition. There's, there's nothing to harvest. We're looking in the wrong place and we need to find the harvest field because it's ready because Jesus is not a liar. And here's the third and final thing from our text that I want to draw our attention to this morning. Great things often have humble beginnings. Great things often have humble beginnings. I told you I wanted to start with the end before I went to the beginning. We read it. We read chapter 1. If you keep reading through all of Philippians, you see just how faithful that church was to Paul, to the advance of the gospel, to the Lord. We see a church that's established, a church that's doing things, has been doing things from the beginning, a church that God has formed and is using for his glory. But it didn't start that way. It started with the gospel being proclaimed on a riverbank outside the city to a ragtag group of exiles. That's who it was preached to. And God did great things from humble beginnings. This church that will forever be remembered because of Paul's letter to them in the New Testament began with a few Jewish converts outside of town on the Sabbath. Who would have thought that a city that didn't even have a synagogue in time would have a thriving church that is a light in the darkness proclaiming gospel in the gospel in this important Roman uh, region. As we consider even our own church, our own ministry here in Belle Glade, 
I don't want you to look around the room and think this. Our best days are behind us. Isn't that easy to do? Perhaps especially on a day like this, a holiday, people are tired, they, were kept, they partied last night or were kept up late, they're traveling for the holidays, whatever it is, they were just too tired to get out of bed this morning and the room looks empty. Let's be honest, the room looks kind of empty a lot. And it's easy to remember back, we've been here 65 years. I remember when there were 60 or 70 people here, there were things going all the time, there was a lot of excitement. I mean, it's easy in our situation to look back and to think, our best years are behind us. But you know what? I challenge you to, to throw away that kind of thinking. This is not the twilight of that which was once great. I want you to think in these terms. Whatever God has in store for us next, and believe me, God's not done with us. Whatever God has in store for us next will grow out of these humble beginnings. Friends, are you with me this morning? Do you believe that? That this is not just the sad decline of something that was once great. This is the twilight of something God once did here. This is the humble beginnings of what the great things that God is going to do next through Belglade Alliance Church in Belglade and regions behind, beyond. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that as we start this new year? I hope you do. I believe that. I'll be honest, if I did not believe that, I would have resigned a long time ago. I do believe that. And we need to believe that together. God can accomplish great things through us if we are willing. If we all together are willing. Great things often have humble beginnings. And I dare you to believe that our best days are still ahead of us, especially as we start this new year out together. But we must own the mission. We have to. We have to own the mission. Again, our new mission statement. By the way, I've said it a lot, but our, our board has finally and, and, and successfully all unanimously approved it. We are a church that is committed to, to do life together on mission for the glory of Christ. And I pray that the Lord continues to lead us in new directions in that way, in that vein. But we have to own this life together on mission for the glory of Christ. Because great things have humble beginnings. And this is the start of whatever God is going to do next. And I don't know about you. I'm excited to see it.